The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the production, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us for this episode of the Business of Blueberries. It's uh, great to be together this week. It's anniversary week around here for the USHBC, and I have back with me again my trusty co-host and committee chair of our Innovation and Technology Committee, Rod Cook. So, Rod, this is quite the milestone, August 8th, for USHBC, and and I know we've just kind of been having some good discussions down memory lane about what's gone on over the last 20 years, but it, it is no small feat to have accomplished what you all have accomplished in the industry, but certainly getting USHBC going and it's kind of a exciting week for our industry and organization. Yep, you're right. It's been a lot of, a lot of hard work, but it's been a lot of fun. I mean, that's for any of the growers that want to get involved or who haven't been involved in USHBC, they really need to come to some of these meetings when we can meet live again, because I'll tell you what, you know, you can have as much enjoyment out of this thing and meeting people that have a shared employer, <laughs> the blueberry industry. I mean, we have some breakout sessions, people bring their musical instruments and impromptu concerts in the park sort of, I mean, it's crazy. It's really yeah. a lot of fun. So. Yeah, it's been a lot, well, a lot of work, but a lot of fun. I know for sure. I've enjoyed listening to all of you just kind of walk through memory lane here recently and, and most recently on the on the call we just had about what's been done in the last 20 years. And and I'm fortunate to be a part of it, you know, just in year one here at the USHBC. And I think this podcast is an outgrowth of that kind of collaboration and reflection of the hard work that goes into uh, the business of Blueberry. So grateful to be together again today. And, and I know we've got some great guests. So what do we have in store for, for our audience today, Rod? Man, we're, we're going to outer space. We're talking about UFOs. Oh, not, not actually. We're, we're going to talk a little bit about drones. I mean, there's been a huge excitement about drone technology, and it's been going on for a while. In fact, it has gotten so hyped up over the years that, you know, a couple of years ago when we did our Blueberry Symposium, the committee just sort of took a stance and says, man, there's, there's too much crazy talk about drones, about all the things they're going to do for us. So we're going to avoid drones at this first symposium. We're going to talk about more basic things. So that's for those who did ask that question, why didn't we include them? That's really the reason why. But, you know, since that time, there's been a lot of reality check, which is not to say that drone technology is not really important. They do seem destined uh, to be part of the whole precision agriculture movement that can help identify problems in the fields more rapidly, we think, and they have a lot of potential uses in the future. So we're going to talk a bit about the real world use of drones in blueberry fields. We've asked Jason Meyer, the research operations director for Peerbolt Crop Management Company here in the Pacific Northwest, and TJ Hafner, lead agronomist for AgriCarol, a large, predominantly organic blueberry operation that runs a lot of farmland here in Oregon in the blueberry business. So they're going to come in and talk to us a little bit about the use of drones, both as a management tool that a scouting company ostensibly uses, and then the grower on how he uses that data. So it ought to be interesting. 
Well, I'm looking forward to hearing all about this, Rod. Uh, but before we dive any deeper with those two, it's time for a crop report. We've been having a lot of fun recording these every week. There's always important information shared and plenty of personality to go with it. So here once again is your Blueberry Crop Report. It's time now for your Blueberry Crop Report, an update on crop conditions and markets from those in the field. Today you'll hear from Brian Sakuma in Washington, Rex Schultz in Michigan, Doug Kramer in Oregon, and Luis Vegas with a report from Peru. This was recorded on August 19th, 2020. My name is Brian Sakuma from the state of Washington, uh, the eastern Washington blueberry growers. are in the final stretch of their harvest. They're harvesting the last calls, uh, the late varieties. So they're about ready to wrap it up here shortly. On western side of the state, we're in the mid-light varieties and the Liberty time frame. We're just starting maybe the, between first and second pick, and we're probably a week out on picking our alliots. And it's still too early to tell how the crop's going to be. I think we'll be maybe close to as a state kind of where we had projected, or it could be a little more or less, but it's not going to be significantly down. But we're just kind of waiting for the final numbers. Hey, here I am in beautiful Michigan. This is Rex reporting in this week. We're uh, having some beautiful weather in Michigan. It's uh, nice and cool and breezy uh, in the 70s, high 70s, the low 80s, but uh, no humidity. So our pickers are very happy with that. We are finishing up pretty much. Uh, everyone is wrapped up with all of the mid-season varieties. They're done and everyone is transitioned into Elliott's. As you get into the southern part of uh, Grand Junction, South Haven area and south, they're getting out of the first pick of Elliott's and probably next week they'll be into the second pick of Elliott's pretty heavily. And up in the Holland area, they are just pretty much getting started with their first pick of Elliott's up there. But uh, everyone is talking that the quality is really good. Volumes are average, nothing exciting, but we are looking at the second pick because of our hot weather. I think I mentioned last week, second pick sizing seems to be a little bit smaller. So uh, some of the people down here are considering whether or not they should even handpick the second round or just go into the process with them just because of the cost difference of hand harvesting and making up the minimum wage differences. So we look to look to have a really good Elliott season. I mean, the quality has been really, really good. And um, market seems to be moving them, but uh, we do see some pricing starting to trend downward. So that'll probably have an effect next week in determining if people are going to turn their machines on or, or stick with their hand picking. But other than that, it's a great day to be a farmer here in Michigan. I'm Doug Kramer from Oregon. Oregon is solidly into our late season varieties. When we get into late season, we don't have the big acreage of late season stuff, so our volumes are down somewhat. They're slower to pick, a little harder to pick, but the quality's still looking good. We had some hot weather over the weekend. The growers are getting through any damage that they might have gotten, which really was limited to those growers that were behind in their schedule and so things are going along. That's really all I got today. 
Hi, everybody. Here, Luis, representing Peru. Up till this point of the season, the production is coming as planned. There are, I've reported some varieties, a, a bit behind schedule and other varieties coming a bit sooner. But overall, the, the season is, is quite as expected. For these seasons, our initial productions, our initial projections are the same, which are 180 million pounds sent from Peru to the U.S. through the whole season. That's an increase of 25% more volume in comparison to the previous season when Peru sent 145 million pounds. Up till this point of the season, Peru have sent 9.9 million pounds. That's an increase of 75% more volume than the previous season when we sent 5.6 million pounds. Just a, a, a note, 65% of this volume that has been sent this season has been sent during the first two weeks of August. This volume is in transit and should be arriving into the U.S. market by the end of the month, first week of September. In terms of, of how our exports are going into other destinations, up till this point, a uh, nine point. 9 million pounds into the US, 7.2 million pounds into Europe, 5.4 million pounds into Asia, mainly China, and 0.4 million pounds into our other destinations. Peru exports uh, directly to 55 countries around the world. That's a report up till this point, uh, 180 million pounds for this season, peaking in week 42. That's the second week of October is our final projections up to this point. Thanks as always to our growers who take the time to participate in recording these crop reports. The group is a lot of fun recording them. And from what I've been hearing, they are a highlight of the podcast for all of you listeners. Well, Rod, why don't you take the lead on our featured conversation with our guests here today? Great. Thanks, Casey. Hey, again, I want to introduce TJ Hafner from AgCare Farming Operations and Jason Meyer from Purebolt Crop Management. Thank you guys both for taking time right in the middle of harvest here in the Northwest. Jason, I know you're a Michigan boy like myself, but why don't you give the folks just a little more background about yourself and, and maybe about Purebolt Crop Management? I mean, a lot of people here in the Northwest know it. They know what the founder, Tom Purebolt, spilled up over the years. But why don't you take a, a, just a moment and give us a little brief bio and a little little talk about Purebolt. Sure. Thanks, Rob. Um, so my own background is, yeah, like you said, I grew up in Michigan, uh, got my degree from Michigan State, left the, the old Mitten State to uh, go into the Peace Corps in West Africa, where I worked in uh, agricultural and forestry issues over there in a much less technologically advanced way than where we're currently working today here. But coming back from that after a couple of years, came to the Pacific Northwest and uh, managed to find a job with uh, Tom Purebolt and Purebolt Cop Management. You know, we do a lot of different things within the berry industry specifically. Primarily, we do on-farm scouting and pest and disease management and work closely with growers to kind of bring new technologies and new research data, new information to help growers essentially do what they do best and grow great fruit. Yeah. Great. Thanks. We also have with us uh, TJ Hafner. He's lead agronomist for AgriCare. TJ, I know, again, it's a very busy time. You're in the middle of harvest. I also know you serve as the chair, I think, of the Oregon uh, Blueberry Growers Research Committee. So 
Can you give us just, a, again, a brief description yourself, uh, your role with AgriCare, what the company company's in, engaged with here in Oregon? Yeah, you bet, Rod. Yeah, I, I grew up on a, on a kind of medium-sized, family-owned grass seed farm here in the Willamette Valley. I graduated from Oregon State University in 2006 and then uh, worked as a ag sales representative for a fertilizer company here locally for six years before joining the AgriCare team in 2012. AgriCare is a farm management company. They're based out of Porterville, California. Our Oregon operation specializes in uh, organic blueberry production, and we also do quite a bit of conventional hazelnut production. Hmm. In Oregon, we manage about 2,500 acres of blueberries. And as you already mentioned, Rod, uh, it's, it's predominantly being managed organically. It's almost all it's either certified organic or transitioning to organic, just about 95% of the acres. Wow. So big operation. Jason, so let's let's get right into drones. Uh, you know, how long has Peerbolt been using drones in their in their work? And can you also give us a little background? What what brought them to it? I mean, it, yeah, they're cool, but I mean, I also know Tom. He wouldn't use these things if he didn't believe that there was a real functionality to them. So, can you give us a little bit history and and vision of what what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, certainly. Um, in 2016, the FAA released rules and regulations for the widespread commercial use of drones in the United States. And it was kind of around that time I had personally been kind of watching the evolving technology around drones and kind of looking forward to that opportunity as I could see a lot of potential applications for it in our particular sector and berry crops. And so right when that came out, we pretty much immediately jumped in. I kind of brought it forward to the company as something it would probably be worthwhile to look at. And to Tom Pierbolt's credit, you know, he's somebody who is very open and eager to experiment with new things and see what happens and see what develops from it. So really from kind of that day one back in 2016, we purchased the drone and started kind of figuring out where and what these uses might be in the field. And that came kind of immediately, we began doing kind of field and farm mapping, kind of looking at the imagery data that we could collect and what we could interpret and extrapolate from that data. Gotcha. And and TJ, you know, Jason's talked a little bit about pure bolts and how they, they came to begin to use these. Is the use of drones over your acreage that you're managing is, you know, is that something you ask for? Is this just so, oh, gee, well, pure bolts has this and, and so we're going to use it? Or, you know, what's the vision of AgriCare and the use of drones? I mean, what sure. are you hoping to gain? Well, you know, our our commercial use of drones has really been mostly with stuff that we've been working with Jason on. I've been, you know, kind of rec- recreationally flying drones for the past five or six years. And, uh, you know, when I first started doing it, it became pretty apparent to me the the value of the perspective you get from seeing the fields from the air. You know, you get to see different distribution patterns of challenges that you're working with in the field uh, and different patterns that you wouldn't be able to see from from the ground level. And then, you know, with the type of imagery available, like what Jason has on their drone, the multispectral imagery, you can you can look even deeper into what's going on in the field. Now, while I don't have a lot of like hands-on drone experience with these multispectral cameras, we do a lot of manned fixed wing imagery. We our fields get flown 
every one to two weeks during the growing season and they give us like NDVI and thermal imagery, which those same cameras are able to be put on drones. So a lot of the experience I have could be transferable over to drones that we'll be talking about in a little bit here. Okay. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to say, you know, this imagery you're talking about, what exactly are you seeing? So this is other than just standard color imagery, or are you looking at both standard color and then you're looking at things like infrared, near infrared, those kind of things. Is that, is that what you're looking at? Yeah, exactly. And Jason, you can probably explain this better than me, but you know, the, your human eye can only view a certain amount of wavelengths. And I don't remember what those wavelengths are, but the imagery we're getting with these multi-spectral cameras are outside of what the eye can normally view. And then like the thermal imagery, obviously that's temperature. Sure. Right? So Jason, what, what are you hoping to gain when you, when you utilize this thermal or uh, the, the multi-spectral kind of imagery? What, what does that help us look at in the field itself? Yeah, so you know the the cameras we use they're multispectral, so that means that they they view the visible light spectrum, so what you can see with the naked eye, as well as it goes into what's called the near red and then the near infrared spectrum, which is just outside of our visual range of color. And as you go towards that end of the spectrum, the light that's reflected is different than what you what you can intuitively see with your eyes. So. The further you get towards infrared, what you're really looking at is the reflection of essentially heat in the field. What we feel and sense is like radiant heat that is coming off as thermal light. So when plants are stressed with water, they're not able to cool themselves adequately and will have a higher heat imprint and thus will reflect more highly in those infrared spectrums. In the near infrared spectrum, what we see a lot is a lot greater contrast when it comes to healthy chlorophyll in the plant and leaf tissue that reflects a good bright color versus unhealthy plants that don't have as abundant a chlorophyll content that appear darker in the imagery. So basically what we see is this contrast between healthy or unhealthy plants. So if I hear you right, one of the spectrum, um, without getting too technical, I, I don't care about the, the spectrum, but you can actually differentiate then between simple water stress and perhaps health issue, specific health issue, whether it's insect feeding or it's fertilization, et cetera. But you can really see those differences through the use of this technology. Exactly, exactly. And then by overlapping that with the kind of visual imagery from the, the color spectrum that we can see, you can get more details. Sometimes you can see those same contrasts in that imagery. Sometimes you can't. It also allows us to kind of pinpoint areas of the field that might say, hey, let's go check that out on foot. Because ultimately, it may be really difficult to identify what the causal agent is of saying this isn't a healthy plant. Is it nutrient or pest related or what have you? So it makes your field men more efficient because you can send them to a specific spot in the field to see a specific issue. You're just not sure exactly what issue you use humans to actually define the specific problem. Exactly. exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. So, so if you come to the field or you come to, you know, I've never used a drone before. Um, You're come to my field for the first time with your, with your machine. 
what what happens? What's a grower? What should a grower expect when when you show up? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think this really kind of gets back to you know, I think a lot of the initial expectations when drone technology first started rolling out, like you said, there was a lot of hype around it, and you know, I I still see a lot of I don't know if bitterment's the right word or bitterness <laughs> rather. Uh, just towards like the fact that this wasn't the golden panacea that was going to make us like understand our fields and in such an intricate right. way. But, um, you know, there's a lot of factors to consider weather is really important. Sunlight and things like that all play a key role. So usually we try to fly a field when the sun is most directly overhead in the day, uh, usually between the hours of 10 and 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. This reduces the amount of shadow that's produced, which can create, it can just essentially hide or distort the imagery in a way that that doesn't make it as useful to you. And usually what happens is I'll go to a field discussing it with the grower, what they want, what they need. We'll program a flight plan into the drone using a tablet. And it essentially takes off and flies a, a path that covers that entire field in a sort of lawnmower type uh, pattern going back and forth, taking pictures about every three seconds or so. And it'll complete that whole field, come back, land all on its own. And I basically download the data off of that drone, put it into a computer, and all those pictures put together will turn into kind of a puzzle, which uh, we put through some pretty intensive software programs that identify where in the pictures overlap and will mesh that all together into one seamless image of an entire area of however large that we might have covered. Cool. So TJ, what kind of information do you, the grower, get back then? Do you get this map or is it more refined? They're actually able to almost look at this like the old trapping deals. Hey, you get a call, you got X amount of traps here. You're, you're saying, hey, this quadrant of the field or this row or that row, uh, we're seeing issues. What, what do you see as the grower? What, what's the kind of data do you get back? As far as the, the drone imagery goes, it's, it's an aerial view of this, of this imagery, you know, where we've, where we've been utilizing it is some of the, some of, a couple of different disease problems that we've been challenged with on on our farms uh, and trying to evaluate the dispersal through the field and how it's changing from year to year. And we're able to get a better estimate of the, the percent, you know, the percent of the plants that are expressing those symptoms, which have allowed us to adjust yield projections for that coming year. And also just get a better idea of how it's moving through the field. And we were hoping to, to maybe recognize like were these diseases being moved around by harvesters or pruners but that that didn't really come to fruition we didn't necessarily see that this seems like i mean i can see where the drone technology has the potential of saving money i mean how how do we break this into how it makes money for growers i mean talk to me about like the the economic decision making of bringing on Jason. Yeah, I guess the way we have utilized the, the, the drone imagery has been more kind of like on a special project basis. If we're trying to understand how a disease is moving through a field, if we want to get a quick shot of, you know, what percent of the 
this block is showing these symptoms at a particular time, you know, we can we can just put a drone up and quickly accomplish that. The the imagery we've been using for you know more frequently across all of our farm has really been the uh, the man fixed wing imagery, which we use a lot for pinpointing scouting procedures or pinpointing scouting projects for our scouts and our agronomists. I don't know if you want me to go into detail about how we're doing that. I know we're supposed to be talking about drones here, but it's, I mean, a lot of that information you can gather with drones, but we've just been doing it with manned fixed wing aircraft because it's a lot more efficient to gather that data over a larger acreage where yeah larger acreage right yep yeah exactly is is that true i mean is is, jason when you're looking at the drone technology of the future does that get more efficient in the future with drone technology i i hear what tj's saying but you have a an opinion on where drone technology is headed in order to really leave it to a, a grower or or a company like yours to to kind of reduce that air traffic per se Sure, sure. Yeah, I think that really what we're talking about here, drone technology is very broad, and we're talking about one kind of aspect of it in terms of imagery and mapping of the fields. And there will be a lot of other applications of drone technology, and that's just kind of one aspect of it. But within that one aspect, you also have, like TJ is mentioning, these manned aircraft imagery things. And essentially, they're doing the same thing that the drone is doing from a lot higher elevation at a lot higher speed they're able to capture a larger area in a shorter amount of time. And there's a number of companies kind of doing this in very kind of innovative and interesting ways that keep the per acre costs relatively low. The information kind of, as TJ was saying, from a broad kind of field and farm-wide perspective is really helpful. The kind of downsides of that, that kind of use is that your flights are basically determined by when those planes can fly in the sky. You're not choosing your time of when to fly it. The imagery resolution is quite a bit less than what you can achieve with drone, but it's still really good. It depends what you're looking for that you may need higher image resolution. And that's been the case working with AgriCare. There's been circumstances where they see an issue kind of broadly from their fixed-wing aircraft imagery and then have asked us to come in and uh, image a smaller, more specific area with the drone to get a better, clearer image of that specific spot. Things that work in tandem together, they're not necessarily competing or standalone technologies in themselves. Sure. I think the resolution we're getting with the, the manned aircraft is somewhere in that, you know, close to a foot or a little bit under I know they say it can get as good as four inch resolution but I think Jason with your drone you you can get like a centimeter resolution and if you're if you're trying to look at individual plants not just like especially blueberry plants a little bit smaller than like hazelnuts it's the higher resolution if you're trying to like assess whether a, a, each plant has a particular disease or whatever that light spectrum is that makes it look like it has that disease obviously a, a higher resolution like a drone would be much more effective. You can, although you're using manned fixed wing as an alternative or as a adjunct perhaps to to the technology that Peerbolt's using, I mean, you can get fixed wing drones to cover larger areas. It's, it's, it's slightly different technology, but the in point of fact, there are people using drones and some that are layering the technology starting with 
perhaps even satellite imagery coming down to fixed wing further down then to, um, you know, a, a hover type of drone. And then, and, and only then when you get that really fine resolution where they can actually, you know, take individual leaf pictures of individual leaves, do they send in the boots to really see and confirm what they're trying to interpret from all of this, uh, this visualization? Is that, is that sort of the direction you think Peerbolt may be heading in eventually, Jason? Is that, you know, the long-term forecast? Yeah, you know, I think we're, we're looking at this technology as a very versatile thing and that is going to adapt and perhaps become a bunch of different things we might do with it. Mm-hmm. You know, the top-down imagery is one aspect. Another area that we're looking at into the future is actually doing full 3D modeling of a whole field, which you do in somewhat of a similar way, except instead of taking a top-down image, you start taking images at an angle of the plant. And when you process that data, you're able to essentially get a 3D model of the field of the plant canopy uh, and things like that. So yeah, there's there's a bunch of different ways that this will kind of evolve over time. Yeah. So so TJ, you know, based on the experience you've got right now with drones, I guess where do you see this evolving within your job in terms of you know, is this something that you are convinced is, you know, a part of the future is going to increase uh, as they get either better sensors or software? Well, I, I absolutely think there's it's going to be part of the future for technology and agriculture. I mean, it's, it's there's been a lot of advances in the way people are using them. I mean, I know we were at a trade show here last winter and there's a, a company that's you know, dispersing biocontrol agents like predators in like an organic production system with drones. And that's something that uh, is usually pretty labor intensive to do. Yeah. And labor, I mean, there's a lot of labor saving possibilities with this too. I mean, also from a scouting perspective, like I already mentioned, we're doing with the demand aircraft. I mean, we're able to, to hone in on problem areas on the farms that we should be focusing attention and or, or having our irrigators focus more attention on this particular area, you know, just a lot of potential there to help us become more efficient. You know, I also think that uh, what Jason was just talking about there, the 3D imaging, I think that's got some real significant potential for helping us like do yield predictions or even pruning cost estimates, which is, you know, as I think everybody knows here, it's one of the biggest single expenses we have in a, in a growing season is pruning. But it's, it's like getting back to the yield prediction, though, a, a really important piece of that puzzle that's missing, I think, is, is like yield monitors on harvesters that uh, would allow us to, to uh, like see how the, the imagery correlates with like a georeference point in the field, what, what kind of yield it had there. I think with that technology coming along too, it'll, you know, Oxbow's been working on that. I heard recently here, they've got some, something that they've got in the pipeline that might be on their machines in the future here that will allow us to have geo-referenced yield points in the field. But if we can start overlaying those, those images with like uh, the images you get from drones, uh, we could get a lot more educated as to, you know, what parts of our field are making us money and which parts are costing us money. <laughs> TJ, I got I, 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 before we let you go, 
I got one more question for you. Has yeah. Jason ever let you fly his drone? <laughs> he has not yet. I have. I do fly recreationally sometimes my own, but I have never flown that one yet. I don't know that I want to with a with that camera cost, Jason, fifteen thousand or something. <laughs> but he's never wrecked it, so I was curious. Like somebody's car, <laughs> yeah, I know. You know. Well, this has certainly been uh, a great conversation. We really appreciate the both of you for joining us today. Uh, this is obviously a topic that you know we'll continue to follow. Uh, it is certainly something that is evolving, and as a part of our industry, something we'll uh, continue to want to keep up with and 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 have you guys back on the show. So we really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Sounds great. Thank you, Casey. Thank you, Rod, for having us on. Well, Rod, that was uh, very enlightening. Great to chat with TJ and Jason and uh, just wanted to take a moment here to see what your takeaways were from today's conversation. Well, you know, Casey, clearly it's a really large topic. And well, at the lead in, I said it was it was hyped. I, I do think it is technology that is becoming of age. Doesn't mean it's maturing. I think Clearly, there are a number of crops now that are using drone technology, drones and technology, I probably should say, to look at crop ripening. They're looking at varietal selections. They're doing this in some of the very high-end wine grapes, both in Europe and in California, those kind of things. So I think we are just really at the beginning of finding the real functionality and ways to make our fields operate more efficiently, cut labor in some of the traditional scouting, still need scouts, still need somebody to interpret this stuff and go see with their eyes. But it does look like a tool that's becoming more and more valuable, I think, as we uh, move into uh, more precision type of agriculture within the specialty crops, blueberries specifically. Yeah, no, I I thought it was fascinating. First, great, great guest to have both the grower and the uh, operator on and just kind of hearing the relationship that they have and and how uh, each is working together to try to make make sense of how to you leverage this technology, obviously, to make, uh, I like the conversation they were having about the yields and being able to estimate and just kind of where the more experience they have with it, the more utilization they're seeing. And, and of course, the balance uh, right now between different technologies. I, I just thought the whole uh, conversation was great and hopefully inspiring for those who are uh, been considering this sort of technology to see, you know, kind of how that grower and operator are working together to figure it out. It's a journey. Technology is a journey. Absolutely. Well, this has been uh, another great episode, Rod. And, and uh, like I said, you know, this being the 20th anniversary and, and maybe you could just say a little bit like uh, as, as we think about these memories, milestones and accomplishments over the last 20 years, you know, the, the, the Innovation and Technology Committee uh, was, was launched not that long ago. Right. It's, it's, it's pretty new. Um, you know, we started with the, with the traditional, shall we say, the promotion committee was the was the critical phase. And then everything else has kind of come on after those, uh, you know, best practices and all of these things. And the newest is is the uh, technology innovation. And I think it shows the growth of the organization. It shows the forward thinking and the forward vision of that leadership, the core leaders uh, of our industry 
and how yeah. they've interacted with uh, yourself and, of course, Mark Vlada before you. And, uh, you know, just again, I can't say enough about the organization. I mean, it, it's really been a, a huge, huge uh, factor in driving the blueberry industry really around the world and, and forward for, for us all. Well, it sure feels like that. And this conversation, you know, trying to put new ideas, thoughts, considerations, obviously innovation is going to be a big topic of conversation going into our virtual conference and expo this fall. So all good things, Rod. Uh, I always appreciate, you know, you bringing some great conversation and, and topics. And of course, this was another great episode. So thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back 